Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as you might have noticed, Matthew's account of, Matthew, of the resurrection is very, very brief. I wanted to take the time to walk you through all the gospel accounts of the resurrection and show you the order and all that, and I realized we wouldn't finish our study in time if I did that. So, you're going to have to just put up with the fact that I'm going to give you the order of the events of the Resurrection Sunday without me making you go through all the scriptures. You want to double check them, there are study Bibles out there, and you can put this. Because if you ever see tried yourself to put together the order of who saw what and when and when did this happen, it's actually a little bit tricky. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at all the scriptures we don't have time to do it, so I'm going to take what from all the scriptures and put it in an order for you and a synopsis of the events of Resurrection Sunday, all right? So, first off, an angel rolls away the stone, and it's accompanied by an earthquake. And the soldiers literally pass out in fear. We're going to come back to that later on. Now, the women arrive at the tomb. Now, if you do a study of the Gospels, you'll see that actually, as soon as it became no longer the Sabbath at 6 p.m. On, uh, on Saturday night, they went and bought the stuff they needed to for the spices. They then went back to their place. Early in the morning then, they came up to go to the tomb. Now the women arrive at the tomb, and they find the stone already removed and the tomb empty. But as they look in the tomb, angels appear inside the tomb, and one of them speaks to them to remind them of what Jesus had said and to tell them to go to tell his disciples and that he was risen and that he would meet them in Galilee. One of the gospel accounts says there was only one angel. Another says there were two. When you put it all together, you realize there were actually two. But the one that says there was one was just talking about the one who did the speaking. There were two, but one did the speaking. Now, the women rush back to tell the disciples, but the disciples don't believe them. Peter and John then run to the tomb, and they look inside. And it's kind of interesting how John tells about this. He tells that he outran him. He meant when us know he was faster. But when they got to the tomb, Peter was the first one to go into the tomb. 
he was a little more bold when they got there. And they look inside, and they only see his grave clothes lying there, and they return back to where they were. Now Mary Magdalene goes back to the tomb and meets Jesus, thinking that he was a gardener at first. By the way, this is the first recorded appearance we have of Jesus appearing after his resurrection. It was to Mary Magdalene alone by herself. Jesus then appears to the women. Now, the way it read in Matthew, it sounds like he appeared to them as they were running back to tell the disciples. But when you put all the gospel accounts together, that's not the order that it happened. They actually at some point go back and as they're on their way, they, uh, Jesus appears to them and he tells them again what the angels had told them. Remember, the angels had told them, tell my disciples that I'll see them in Galilee. He then, Jesus himself, meets the women and says, tell them that I'll meet them in Galilee. Now, at some point around here, we don't know exactly when, Jesus appears to Peter on this first day of the week, the day that he rose from the dead, and also to these two men on the road to Emmaus. Luke's account is of the two men who were discouraged. They were going back. Jesus appears to them. When they recognized it was him, they ran all the way back to the upper room where the disciples were all there, and they said, we've seen Jesus. He's alive, and he's appeared to Peter. Now, that night, as they are finishing this conversation, the two men there, Jesus comes into the room and appears to the disciples there, mainly the 11 as well, but one wasn't there and his name was Thomas. It's not until a week later that Thomas actually sees Jesus there in the upper room. That is a brief synopsis of what all happened in the appearances and everything on Resurrection Sunday. Again, you want to have the fun, do the research, you're going to get your Bible out and you're going to have to go take a look at this account, this account, and put it all in order. I believe I've got it right, um, but again, you can go and wrestle with it some more. But what I want to do in the time we have tonight is I want to pull out from this last chapter of Matthew some things that will be some real value for us, some things that we can get from this. So let's, let's go back and look again at chapter 28, verse 1. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now we're going to stop there, and we're going to deal with this. Does anybody notice how the angel says to the women, Don't be afraid? Did the angel say, Don't be afraid to the guards? No, <laughs> they wanted them to be very afraid. It's almost like the angel said, be afraid, be very, very afraid. And they all said, yes, sir, we will be very afraid. And they passed out like dead men. I mean, they were so, so fearful. It's kind of like, you ever seen a goat when they get scared? Bonk, and they just fall over. If you haven't, Google it. It's hilarious. All right, but the, they pass out for fear. But the angels tell the women, don't be afraid. They told the, the angel tells the guard pretty much, be afraid. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 7. Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, before we read any further, who is Jesus talking about? Himself, not Satan. I've been in many churches where people say, oh, that's Satan. No, no, no. Satan doesn't have the ability to cast you into hell. Satan's getting cast into hell himself. Who holds the keys of death in Hades? 
Jesus does. So Jesus said, let me tell you who you should be afraid of. Don't be afraid of man who, after you've been killed, can't do anything more to you. The person you should be afraid of is the one that, after he's killed you, has the ability to do even more. That's whom you should fear. But then keep reading. Then he, in the same breath almost, says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So how does Jesus go from saying, here's whom you should be afraid of. You should be afraid of God. To don't be afraid. The answer is in Proverbs chapter 9. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 9 and look at verse 10. Oh, the start of the answer is in Proverbs 9. We're going to go from there to 1 John chapter 4 after that. Proverbs chapter 9, look at verse 4. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Did I say verse 4? I'm sorry, verse 10. Proverbs 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Let me read this to you again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Why did Jesus say, Whom hears you should be afraid of? Afraid of the one who has the ability to cast your body and soul into hell? Because we should understand that God is holy and that He's a God who's going to punish sin and he has every right to because he's created everything and he has set the parameters of what he considers right and wrong. And if you break his commands, he has the right to send you to hell and out of his presence and he will. And he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of who? The Holy One brings understanding and insight. Go with me to 1 John chapter 4. Yet as you know, Jesus then also said, but you're of more value than many sparrows. Don't be afraid. Go to, go to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 13 through 18. In verse four, chapter 4, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. All right, so why did the angel say to the guards, be afraid? They were unbelievers. Why did the angel say to the women, don't be afraid? They were believers. And folks, that's the difference. I'll get right to you, Michael. That's the difference between fearing God, and we're going to talk to him. This might be where your question is going. We're going to talk a little bit more about the fact that the Bible does teach that Christians are to fear God. Children of God are to fear God. We're going to get to that in a second. But right now, I want you to set off, understand on the basic level right now. If you're not in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you're still in your sin and you're headed for judgment. Jesus himself in John 3, 16 goes on after saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. After that, it goes on and says that he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Listen, but then he goes on and says, But those who don't believe are condemned already. 
So if you're in a situation where you have not had your sins erased and forgiven through Jesus' blood, which has already been shed to pay for your sin, and you've never received it by believing in Him, as we read here in 1 John, we have come to know and believe and receive the love that God has for us. We abide in Him because of that. That love from God removes fear of punishment. I'm not afraid of God getting me. He's already fully punished Jesus for everything I've ever done and will do, and I am not afraid of His punishment anymore. Because I'm not a fear of the judgment. I'm confident on the day of judgment. And so he says to me, Jim, you're of many value, more value than many sparrows. Now, for those who are outside of God, he said, you're, you're not covered yet. And you're still under my wrath. You're already condemned. You've got to flip the switch, if you will, by believing in my son and what he's done. The only way you can be forgiven. Now, I'm going to let you ask your question, then we'll go back to. So why is there an anomaly where the other three Gospels sound like they weren't at the rock stone was rolled away before they got there. The stone was rolled away before the women got there. Matthew, it sounds like the angel it, came down. If you look, again, if you read it just by Matthew, it looks like it happened all right at the same time. But if you remember, the women in the other gospel accounts, as they're going there, ask this question, who's going to roll away the stone for us? They would have never asked that question if they had already gotten there and they saw the thing open and rolled. So in Matthew, it looks like it all happens at the same time. It doesn't. They're not standing there when the Roman guards fall dead. They are as dead. They're, they've already fallen over. The, the, the stone's already been opened. So that's why it appears to be an anomaly. Now, go ahead. We also have a tendency, I think, when we read the Bible and we read, and there was a great earthquake. Stop and think about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. If there was a great earthquake, there's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of people are, you mm -hmm. know, happening. I mean, it, and we have a tendency to just brush over that. Right. So, you know, in, in the reality of life, if we were to experience a great earthquake, what, what would really be going on? It depends on how you, you might be noticing this one. Someone else would notice that. And there's so many other things agreed. Also interestingly about the great earthquake is there was a great earthquake at his death and a great earthquake at his resurrection. And I don't know if you all know it or not, what's going to be happening when he comes back, there's going to be a massive earthquake that levels the whole earth. So it, it, it was, go with me real quickly to Psalm 34, though, because there's a tendency for Christians to think, I don't need to fear God because I'm his child. And well, that's true. You don't need to fear punishment. But the Bible does teach over and over that Christians, those who are forgiven of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ, children of God, need to fear God. Let's take a look at what the scripture says here. Look at Psalm 34. Look at verses 8 through 22. David says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The, now young lions suffer, and want, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now come, O oh, children, listen to me. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace, excuse me, and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Now the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, we've got to pull a couple things out of here. First off, David says, let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Because those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You want to you learn how to fear the Lord? Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. Do what he says. Respect his word. Seek him. Humble yourself and say, I need you. You are God. You are holy. You are perfect. You do nothing wrong. And then live a life that says, I will not only read, I will do what you say because I reverence you. I have a fear of you that's not a fear of punishment, but a fear of missing out on the blessings that come for obedience. You understand what I'm saying? I'm not afraid of God's punishing me, but I do fear missing out on the blessings that come for those who trust God. What does he said here? Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that he's good. We have a heavenly father we're going to get into here that sees us in a totally new way through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I fear missing out on that. I don't fear punishment. I fear missing out on all that he has for me. And when I choose to live for self and I don't listen to you and I don't respect what you have to say, I miss out on a lot that God has for me. Now, some of you would say, Jim, I was following along with you until that verse that said, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. I know of people that trusted the Lord and they've had broken bones. Let me show you something about prophecy. Look again at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward, what's that next word? Their, it's plural, their cry. The face of the Lord is against, what's that next word? Those who do evil, plural, and to cut off memory of them, plural, from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. All right. But then it jumps to singular in verses 19 and 20. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And then it goes back to, in verse 22, none of those, plural again, who take refuge in him will be condemned. Did you catch that? The prophecy all of a sudden went from a promise to a specific prophecy about an individual whose bones will not be broken. We know who that is, don't we? It was Jesus. And the scripture in Matthew, and remember, and when we looked at Matthew and Mark and Luke, their account of his crucifixion, and they remembered that verse, that none of his bones would be broken. you got to be real careful that you don't just say, oh, that applies to me. He's promised I'll never have a broken bone. No, no, no. That's a singular promise of a certain individual. Around it is promises for us, but there's that one verse that all of a sudden talks about an individual. So here's what I want you to understand. If you don't know the Lord, you better be afraid. A day of judgment is coming. And it's, it's, it's a type of judgment, if you've never read the book of Revelation, you don't even want to be here when it happens. If you are in right relationship with God through faith in His Son, He goes out of His way to say, don't be afraid in that way. Don't be afraid of punishment. Don't be afraid of the, the wrath of God. Yet, all through the scriptures, his children should fear him. The fear should be a reverence and an understanding. You know what? My dad knows what he's talking about. My dad is wise. And my dad is generous and good. And I don't want to miss out on all that he has for me. You understand? That's the fear of the Lord for Christians. Definitely one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, look at the, uh, go back to chapter 28, verse 7, 10, and 16. Matthew chapter 28, look at verse 7. 
Then the angel speaking, he says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. All right? There you're going to see him. See, I've told you. Jump down to verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid, and go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So we're going to take a look at that tonight. There's something in here that a lot of people don't really understand. But Jesus, through the angel, first of all, tells the women, go tell my disciples that I'm going to see them in Galilee. Later on, they run into Jesus. He tells the women himself, tell my disciples I'll see them in Galilee. By the way, I'm sure the women went back and told them. Did all the disciples pack up from Jerusalem and head to Galilee? No, because obviously they're there that night when Jesus comes. They were there a week later when Thomas is there in the upper room. It's not till later on, we see in John 21, that the disciples are back in Galilee, and Peter says, hey, a few of them, let's go fishing, and that's when Jesus appears a third time to them. We're going to get to later tonight in our study, this time that the 11 are on this mountain in Galilee. I'm going to show you from Scripture that most likely this 11, verse 16 in Galilee on this mountain, were more than just the 11. Probably 500 who were there at the time, and I'll show you that from Scripture. But it's interesting to me, Go back to verse 7. In verse 7 it says, Then he, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. All right? Now, you might not have caught this, because this is one of the most famous passages that we've all read, and I've got to be honest with you, I didn't even really catch it in all these years. Jesus had already told them before his death that he was going to die, and then he was going to rise, and that they would see him in Galilee. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 26. Look at verses 30 through 32. In Matthew 26, verses 30 through 32, this is during the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, which we now know as the Lord's Supper. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Of course, Peter then goes on and says, though they all fall away, I won't. And we dealt with that whole passage. I'd never really noticed that in all the midst of that. Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead and you'll see me in Galilee. I'll go see you in Galilee. So the angel says, tell my disciples he's gone ahead of them. He's going to see you in Galilee. They don't move. Jesus himself comes and tells the women, go tell them, I'll see them in Galilee. Right away, they don't move. And Jesus, in his mercy, actually shows up to the two men on the road to Emmaus who were discouraged and walking back. They probably were there when the women came back and said, he said he'd go ahead of you to Galilee. Right? Remember? They said, we were there. Some of our number, some of our women of our group went and saw the tomb was empty. They came back and said they'd risen from the dead. A couple of our guys went and checked it all out. They came back. and So the two men on the road to Emmaus were there when all this happened. They heard that he was going to meet him in Galilee, and they were discouraged in walking back. And Jesus could have said, well, you had your chance. But remember, if you believe in him, he loves you. And he's patient. He's merciful. And he revealed himself to them. They went back to the group. He shows up that night in the upper room, shows him his hands and his feet. Of course, Thomas wasn't there. He says, unless I see it myself and put my own hand in his side and touch his hands, I won't believe. And what does Jesus do a week later when Thomas is there? He says, I came back for you, dude. 
come see, come taste, come touch, come watch me eat. You know you see what I'm saying? It's amazing how patient God is. Anybody else glad that he's that patient with us? I've told you I was going to go to Galilee. I told the, the angel told you, the, Jesus, myself told you, told the women, and they didn't go to Galilee right away. And when they do go to Galilee, they don't look like they're looking for Jesus. Let's go back fishing. And when he's on the shore, they're like, hey, that's the Lord. Man, I thank God for his patience. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so in the beginning of Acts, mm -hmm. it says that they were all assembled in the upper room in Jerusalem, and they were told to wait. Yeah, that that's after. Is that that much further after? Yes, you're going to see why. I'm glad you're asking the question. The beginning of Acts, they're told to wait in Jerusalem, and we're going to get to that tonight. We're going to cover that. So if you'll hang on, we don't... Half a day's journey. Wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't that, wasn't that big of a journey. It was a little bit of a journey between the two. Okay. Whether or not you went around Samaria or through it. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's very doable. Okay. All right. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 3. Paul said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive. In other words, if you want to double check what I just said, you can ask these people, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, that's you know his brother, uh, half-brother, if you will, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, appeared to me. So as Paul's giving an account of Jesus' appearances and resurrection, he appeared to Peter before he even met all the rest of the group in the upper room that night. Remember, the two men on the road to Emmaus came back into the room before Jesus appeared and said, he's appeared to Peter. They already knew that. But don't miss this. But he also appeared to 500 believers at one time. And most likely, and I think it is, this is what we're reading about here in Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, by the way, that's a little more evidence that there's probably more than just the eleven. Because at this point, it would be really hard for some of the disciples to doubt. Would you not agree? <laughs> the eleven? He's already appeared to them. He's eaten in front of them. They've touched him. Uh, they were there when he appeared to Thomas. But at some point during his meeting with them in Jerusalem, he says, guys, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Keep in mind, most of Jesus' disciples and most of his people that believed in him were in Galilee. He did most of his ministry up in that area. There were very few down in Jerusalem that really did. And so they at some point leave Jerusalem, go up to Galilee, like Jesus said, to a mountain that he had directed them. And there he appears to at least 500 who are there with him. But some of that 500 doubted. Some of the 500 doubted. But go back with me to Matthew chapter 28 and look at verse 10. There's something else in here that I can't wait to show you. Matthew 28, verse 10. Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell who? My brothers. All right, I want to take a little bit here. Show you something cool. Go back with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, look at verses 8 through 15. 
John chapter 15, verse 8. Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's the fear of the Lord. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. All right, so Jesus says, I don't just see you as disciples anymore. I don't just see you as servants. I see you as what? Friends. But then he goes a step further after his resurrection. The, the angel says, go tell his disciples. But Jesus says, you go tell my brothers. Because of the death of Jesus on our behalf. Remember, he became flesh because we are flesh. He lived without sin because we could not live without sin. He became like us in every way. And because of that, in our faith in him and his righteousness being given to us, we, after his resurrection, are united with God in the same way that Jesus is united with God. We're given his righteousness and he sees us as family. Oh, by the way, let's be honest. We might have family that we don't always agree with. We might not always like what they do. But if we're godly people at all, they're family. Doesn't that supersede things? You've entered into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ to the point that he doesn't see you as servants anymore. Now, there's nothing wrong with people like his half-brother James writing at the beginning of his book of James that he was a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should have a humble attitude that says this is only, you know, we're, we're humble servants just doing what is our duty. He's done it. We should have a humility. But don't get to the point where you think that God's just using you as a slave or a servant where you're just doing his bidding. He doesn't see you that way. He sees you as family. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verses 10 through 17. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two. 22. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's Isaiah eight eighteen. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Then it goes on, since he suffered when he's tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted as well. Jesus, by his life, and his death, and especially by his resurrection, has been made into a relationship with us where we are considered family. I can't say it any better than Paul does. Go to Romans chapter 8. 
Romans 8. Look at verses 9 through 17. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Keep reading. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Jump over in chapter 8 to verses 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Years ago, when I was uh, a young man and I was working one of the many jobs I've had in my lifetime, I was a bag boy. I, was, I bagged groceries at a stop and shop, or I say it was a shop and save up in New Hampshire. And while I was bagging groceries one day, I was working behind this African-American lady who always was cold, and so she had a little sweater on over her uniform, and she was running the register, and I was bagging the groceries. And a lady came through the line, and she actually had a kid that was misbehaving, and she turned to her kid in front of all of us and said to her kid, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to disown you. And the lady who was running the register quietly and lovingly said to this mama, he, she said, can I show you a picture? And the lady's like, sure, I guess. And she pulled out of her sweater a picture of one of her sons. She said, this is my son. He's 20-something years old. He's made some wrong choices, and he's done some bad things, and he's in prison right now. But I'll never disown him because he's my son. And then she put the thing back in her pocket and Went back to working and I stuck in my head. Remember what Jesus said? I will lose none of those that the Father has given me. If you are in Christ, He loves you. He doesn't see you as a slave or a servant. He sees you as His brother, as family, and He loves you. We should humbly say we're willing to serve and willing to do what you ask of us, but don't think that He's a mean God that's out to get you. He loves you. Put in my notes here, not only does he love you, he's patient 
But the sooner we realize His words are best for us, the better we'll be off. Remember how we've been learning the fear of the Lord? Taste and see that He's good. Do what He says. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Let me show you how John puts it there. First John chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? Obey His commandments. Listen closely. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. He is doing this when he gives commands and he gives us his word because he knows what's best and he loves us and he cares for us. The problem is we've got an enemy out there that wants us to believe that he's not for us, that he hates us, that he's against us. We have an enemy that's out there. Remember, he kept saying to God, the only reason Job likes you is because you're blessing him and you take that away and he'll curse you to your face. And of course, you know, Satan speaks through Job's wife and says, you know, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? He's not taking good care of you. Satan was trying to get man to feel like God was against him, and he was trying to get God to think man was against him. He's trying to divide us. Folks, let the truth of the Scripture speak to you. If you are in Christ, he says, you're family now. And there are so many blessings for being in the family of God. But because a good parent doesn't reward bad behavior... A good parent is going to bless the kid that's obedient. And I want you to learn the fear of the Lord. Do what he says. Do what he says, and you will experience the joy. He said, I want my joy to be in you that your joy may be full. By the way, when Jesus was in his last hours on the earth before he went to the cross, um, remember what he prayed in the garden we looked at last week in John 17? I have obeyed you by doing the work you gave me to do. There was a peace that Jesus had right up to the cross because he had done what the Father had asked of him. And that's going to be important for us as we wrap up tonight. Now, we're not going to take much time in verses 11 through 15, but go back to Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. It talks about how the soldiers and the Jewish leaders tried to explain Jesus' resurrection. The soldiers, by the way, had a com if they were given a command to guard the tomb, if the guy got out of the tomb, what was to happen to them? They're going to be put to death. So they don't go and tell Pilate what happened. <laughs> it's interesting. They run to the Jewish religious leaders, whom, by the way, you might not have caught this. It appears that the Jewish religious leaders have some kind of power over Pilate that they've even started to notice. So the point that they would actually go to the Jewish religious leaders. Remember how Pilate kind of gave in to them and gave them what they wanted? It was obvious to these guys that even the Jewish religious leaders are bossing Pilate around a little bit. Exactly. And then what, is, what, is, what do the religious leaders say? If word gets of this to the governor, which is Pilate, we'll take care of it. We'll handle that. And they give him a large sum of money to spread this lie that even though they saw the angel, felt the earthquake, saw the resurrection, if you will, they were paid a large sum of money to tell this lie that while they were sleeping, uh, the disciples came and stole his body. I'm going to ask you a quick question. How much are you willing to take to ignore the truth of God in your own life? These guys saw the resurrection. Yeah, they passed out. But I'm pretty sure when they woke up, they remembered it. And they took a large sum of money 
to act like it wasn't true when they knew it was. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9, verses 25 and 26. It doesn't matter how much that money was, according to Luke 9, 25 and 26. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, loses his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I'm going to ask you again. What are you hanging on to? that's keeping you from acknowledging the truth of who Jesus is. There's also a second thing in this little episode of the soldiers taking a bribe to say that he rose from, uh, didn't rise from the dead, but his disciples came and stole him while they were asleep. If the disciples came and stole Jesus' body while they were asleep, how do they know it was the disciples who took the body? You ever thought about that? If you're sleeping, you're not going to know who took the body. I just want you to hear this. Lying doesn't do you any good. Because once you tell a lie, you've got to start telling a bunch more lies to protect yourself from the first lie. It's easier to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because if anybody even said to you, well, how do you know as the disciples if you were asleep when it happened? They would have had to come up with another lie to protect that lie. And we'll just leave it at that. We're going to close our study tonight with our look at Jesus' commissioning of the disciples in Galilee. The fact that some of these disciples doubted, like I talked to you earlier, doubted this time shows that it was more than the eleven. He had already appeared intimately to them many times. But now Jesus has got most likely a group of 500 or more on this mountain in Galilee. And he says that they were to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations by teaching them all that God had taught them. But there's a qualifier to this. The first thing that I want you to understand is this. Not, we're not to go in our own power. This goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Sheila. Go back to Luke 24. Luke 24, look at verses 44 through 49. Now, it appears that there's a break in Luke's account of what happened on that resurrection night. He had showed up in the upper room that first night of the week after the two men on the road to Emmaus had come back and said he's alive and he's appeared to Peter. Uh, he comes in. He says, you got anything to eat? He eats a piece of fish and they took it and ate it before them. It appears that there might be a different time period when verse 44 happens. And it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Then you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is why I think there has to be, this section of Luke's account has to be after Galilee. Remember, the angel says, go to Galilee. He'll meet you in Galilee. Jesus himself tells the women, go to Galilee. He said he'd go to Galilee. He had already told them himself, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. They leave Jerusalem at some point, and they go to Galilee. We see that in John 21. They're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and he appears to them again. They're on some mountain that he directed them to, and he says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. 
teaching them everything that I've commanded you. Yet it appears that after that, they were told to go back to Jerusalem and wait and stay in Jerusalem until they receive power. Now, if you know anything about the feast days, there was the Passover, and then after that was the Day of Atonement, Pentecost, and all those things. So they may be left between and then came back to be in Jerusalem for the rest of the feast. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus has said, go into all the world and make disciples. But he then qualified it and he said, but don't go until you've received power. Don't go in your own strength. Go in mine. That's very important. A lot of people have tried to go and tell people about Jesus. But God's not been in it. Go to Acts chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Luke is writing and he says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but go wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said it to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it appears that after the resurrection Sunday... They leave Jerusalem and go to Galilee where he told them. And he teaches for 40 days, not all in Jerusalem, a lot most likely in Galilee. And at one point there's 500. And while there's 500 on this mountain, he says, I'm going to tell you all authority has been given to me. And I'm going to command you now to go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them everything that I've taught you. But then after that, he says, but wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. Don't go off and try to go be my witnesses until you've received power. Now, I'm going to come back to that working in his power in just a second. But there's a second qualifier here, too, the Great Commission. Not everybody's supposed to go everywhere. And the Bible teaches that very, very clearly. When he says go into all the world, does that mean if you've only stayed in Brevard County, you're sinning? Not if God's wanting you to be in Brevard County. The scripture is very, very clear. And go ahead real quickly and look with me at Acts chapter 16. Paul is trying real hard to be obedient to the Great Commission and go into all the world. And in Acts chapter 16, look at verses 6 through 10. It says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, come, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul tried to go into Asia, tried to go into Mysia, but the Spirit said, that's not where I want. But Jesus, didn't you say go into all the world? Yes, but I'm also in charge of where in all the world you go and when in all the world you go. 
We've taken the Great Commission and we have turned it into something that we're in control of. And we've heard things like, we got to get the gospel to the whole world. And we, 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 we. And for many years, I've been part of denominations that have put so much emphasis on man's effort and man's energy and man's strategies and man's plans. And it sounds spiritual, but I've come to realize all God asks of Jim Johnson is to go where he tells me to go, when he tells me to go, and only go in his power. And that's for all of us. The question over the years has been, this great commission, was he just talking to the 11? Well, it's obvious now he couldn't have been just talking to the 11 because some doubted. And Paul tells us there was probably 500 on that mountain. He was talking to the, all the disciples. Folks, that's for all of us. He doesn't say, go preach. He just says, teach them what I've taught you. But you need to know how God's gifted you and what he's called you to, and where he would want you to be, who are the people he's put in your path, and learn on a daily basis how to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. How do we do that? Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we're to offer our bodies, our flesh is a living sacrifice, daily renewing our minds. Lord, I'm going to live for you and your, by your power, not in my own strength. Go to Romans 12, where I just quoted, but I want you to see it. Go to Romans chapter 12, look at verses 1 and 2. says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, live, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal. That's a daily renewal in the Greek. Renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, keep reading. Paul says, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many parts, and the parts don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members are parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion... To our faith. If it's in service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Folks, we've all been given a great commission to go and tell people about Jesus, but we're not all to go in the same way, into the same place, into the same time. We're to individually, daily say, Lord, how would you use me to tell people about you? Who would you put in my path? And show me when to speak and when not to speak. Keep me from thinking that I have to go to work for you and I've got to tell these people. But I only want to tell them when you say tell them. Because it's obvious that there are times that Jesus said, nope, don't want you to go there. Don't want you to talk to them right now. Hold off. I want you to be here. I'll get you there eventually, but not now. And when you learn to work in that way, walking with Jesus and being used of him is so much more fun. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know many of you, if you grew up in the denomination I grew up in, Spent half your time worrying about whether or not you worked hard enough. Anybody else felt that way? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Because you were taught to go work for Jesus, work for Jesus, work for Jesus. And that's not what Jesus says. He says, my commands are not burdensome. He says, come unto me, you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm meek and gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden is light. And when you find the role that God has for you, enjoy it. And don't let other people tell you all the other stuff you're supposed to be doing too. And don't let the preacher even tell you all the other stuff you're supposed to be doing. You walk with Jesus and you do what he's asked you to do. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 10 and 11. In 1 Peter chapter 4, listen closely to verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves, listen, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to go in his authority and in his power, knowing that he is with us always. Does that sound familiar? Go back to Matthew 28. It's the last verse. He's just said in verse 20, teach him everything to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Oh, we might run out of his will and out of his power and blessing at time or two, but he's patient and he'll chase you down lovingly and get you back on the right path. And he's not mad. He's sad for you. He's grieved sometimes when you miss out on some of the blessings you could have had. But he's able to say, let's get going from here and use you and reward you. He doesn't see us as servants, but as friends and family. Go to Psalm 25. We'll close tonight with Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. By the way, this teaching is not New Testament teaching. It's been in the Old Testament all along. Remember Micah 6, 6 through 8? What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 51, David says, If you desired sacrifice, he would give it. All you're wanting from me is a broken heart, a contrite spirit that you won't despise. Folks, it's been a blast studying Matthew with you, but we haven't studied Matthew. We've been studying the Bible. And next week, we're going to start breaking down the Bible with the book of Daniel. And I can't wait. I love you. Thanks for coming.